When we come to Mark's gospel in the 15th chapter, you can open your Bibles there. If you don't have a Bible with you, please help yourself to one near you. There should be one under your seat or a seat nearby. We're in the gospel in the 15th chapter, Mark's gospel. And we, when we come to this passage, the world is upside down. You've lived your life probably for years, if you're a thoughtful person, if you reflect sometimes in those quiet hours before you fall asleep, that something's not right with the world, that even your best moments have some sort of sadness or wistfulness at least mixed into them, if for nothing else, for no other reason than those best and happiest moments Necessarily, the thing that's bringing you joy is not going to last forever. In Mark 15, how upside down the world is, is on display as it never was before in human history. By Jewish understanding, if Mark is telling us the story of Jesus' last hours, according to a Jewish understanding of time, Pilate has concluded a mockery of a trial, an illegal trial that took place at night with false witnesses and all kinds of violations of rules and laws. And at six in the morning, Jesus is pronounced condemned. When we come to this passage in Mark's gospel, at the height of the heat of the day, when it should have been noon by a, Jewish, by a Jewish understanding of time, which Mark appears to be using here, the one innocent, righteous person who ever lived and walked the earth among fellow men hangs on the cross condemned. He's being mocked by people he's dying for. A British scholar who spent his life studying the Gospels of Jesus explains them like this, the Gospels are long introductions to the death and resurrection of Jesus. If you read through the Gospel and you think about what little we're told about Jesus, three years of His life and public ministry go by rather quickly. But when it comes to what has been called the Passion Week, in other words, the week of Christ's suffering which culminates in His crucifixion and death. The gospel writers really slow down and give you personal conversations and details. They take you into the upper room when Jesus is fulfilling the Jewish Passover and explaining to His Jewish disciples that have celebrated this night all of their lives that everything they had ever done in their religious observance pointed forward to Him. And he really is what John the Baptist said. He was the Lamb of God who is going to take away the sin of the world. John's gospel tells us that Judas, who had seen the very person of God in Jesus Christ, who had witnessed the words and the ways of God on earth when Jesus became a man, Judas had walked with him for three years but moved with a betrayal that makes his name synonymous with being a traitor, he goes out into the darkness of that night to gather up wicked men who are going to bring weapons against Jesus who is not going to resist them. 
In fact, we're told in John's gospel, when they came by torchlight, Jesus stepped forward to meet them. They asked for him, and he said simply, I am. And John gives us this fascinating legal detail. The men who had come to arrest Jesus fall to the ground. In that moment, the pronouncement of who Jesus is, the Son of God, I am, eternal God, now being handed over to wicked men, His word alone is enough to knock strong men down to the ground. And then you see the wickedness of the human heart where they shake it off and stand up again and lay hands on the word of life. Then the mockery of a trial, then the false witnesses. Even the witnesses with all the time that they had had to conduct this mockery of a trial, even they cannot agree. But they put Jesus to death. And at noon, this happens. Mark 15, verse 33. When the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. In other words... From noon until three, darkness enveloped the crucifixion of Jesus. We're not sure how far this darkness extended. But men, soldiers, people accustomed to death who knew what the coppery smell of blood was like as it dripped off a cross where they were executing yet another person in name of the Roman state. The last three hours of their time with Jesus was spent in darkness. And fear should have gripped their hearts, but it doesn't. It continues. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means you could look a long time in the Bible without reading words more mysterious than these. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And some ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. What's happening here? I have to tell you, I studied this passage for the first time in seminary, and it amazes me still. When I look into the thoughts that great Students of the Bible have set down for me. I understand that Martin Luther, some 500 years ago, were told by his historians, came to this reading, and when he read, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, sat bolt upright in his chair and sat quietly, staring straight ahead. No food, no drink for hours. Someone who saw him said he looked like he was dead in his chair. And finally, after hours of reflection and amazement, he stood up and said, God forsaking God, how can a man understand that? Charles Spurgeon, who I would recommend everything and anything he's written to you, is probably one of the greatest preachers ever and certainly the best in the English language. 
He said, when I look into this passage, I feel like a man looking down into a deep mine, and he cannot fathom its depths. What's happening here? The world's upside down. The Creator is being killed by the creation. Life apparently is being extinguished by darkness. All the forces of the world, it wasn't a Jewish thing alone, all the forces of the world, Jewish and Gentile, religious and civic, whether they were men in authority or simply angry people in a mob, everyone had conspired against Jesus for this moment. And from the darkness, where it seems to me, if I can explain it to you like this without being too poetic, it's as if the creation shuddered and put a veil of darkness over the Son of God and was ashamed to see what was happening to its Creator. From that darkness, Jesus cried out the worst thing that any human being could ever say. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Have you ever felt forsaken by God? It's a terrible experience to think that the hand of God has turned against you, that He will no longer listen, that your cries will fall on deaf ears, that He's done with you, that He's turned His back on you. That's the worst thought, the worst emotion that any human being could go through. If we take Jesus at His word, this is so serious that in trying to answer the question, why was Jesus forsaken by God, some people have read the Bible and tried to explain that He really wasn't. They point out correctly that He's quoting Psalm 22, written a thousand years before His life, and that psalm ends on a note of hope and deliverance. But at least so the world would hear him and the gospel writers would write it faithfully down for us, Jesus didn't say anything else from Psalm 22. He asked a simple, heartbroken, yet faith-filled question, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Spurgeon said, I can't understand the meaning of this passage, but he tried to offer a few thoughts about it. I'd like to do the same. Whatever is happening here, and this takes us into the fellowship of the Trinity, in, in the eternal relationship that the Father has with the Son. This takes us into the very nature of the person who has always simply existed, who is God Himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Whatever else is going on, I know that this has everything to do with sin. 700 years before His birth, Isaiah wrote to Israel, and he said this in Isaiah 59, verse 2, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. This is the trouble, and this is the nature of sin. Sin makes a separation between people. Isaiah goes on to write, your sins have hidden his face, his face from you so that he does not hear. It's not that God is unwilling or unable to sin, but sin, Isaiah said, has put a distance between people and their God. That's what sin does. The very nature of sin is sin separates. 
The most underestimated thing in the entire universe is the nature and the power and the consequences of sin. It's the most amazing thing in the world. We live with it every single day. Our conscience accuses us when we blow it. We feel deeply the sting of other people sinning against us. We know when our conscience accuses us that we have sinned against God and against somebody else, and yet sin is minimized, it's rationalized, it's explained away, and above all, it is compared where I compare my sin to yours, and that man's to mine, and in that I take a shallow comfort. If you want to understand the depth and the severity and the consequences of sin, you only have to look at the cross of Jesus. If we take Jesus seriously, if we take Him at His word, and we always should, whatever is happening to Jesus, however Spurgeon or Luther or God help me, me all these years later with my much smaller understanding could ever tell you brought that heartbroken cry out of the lips of Jesus Christ who made everything there was. That's what John explains to us. John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In other words, the fundamental reality of human existence is there is a God who is one but has perfect fellowship within the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And they simply have always been And now sin is being dealt with on the cross, and the separation that sin makes between God and people and between other people and their fellow fellow man is now affecting Jesus. Paul, who once hated the name of Christ and pursued those to death who believed in him, explained the severity of sin this way, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. If you've been in church for a while, especially if you went to church as a child, this is probably one of the first verses that you were taught from the Bible. It says one of the most obvious things in the world, all have sinned. You know that, you believe that, because I promise you locked your doors before you came to church today. You know that sin's in the world. You know that there is natural evil and moral evil in the world, and it's just a part of life that you account for every single day of your existence. One of the burdens that I pray about before I come to preach to you on Sunday mornings is I know that sin has made a mess of my life and yours and that your relationships are not as warm as you would like them to be. There's distance in the church family, there's distance in marriages and between children and parents and between people who used to be close friends. What sin does is it separates, it separates us from one another and it separates us from God. And the nature of the problem is in that simple verse, all have sinned and here's the consequence, here's the reality in which human beings live every single day of their life and it doesn't bother us because we're like fish in water. We're used to it. We're born into it. We cannot conceive of life without sin. We've never taken a breath in our conscious experience without accounting for it in some way. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You see, God is indescribably perfect. That simple little song we were singing just a few minutes ago, you are perfect in all of your ways. There's not one person on earth who could ever say that without being laughed off the stage. 
The best person you've known would never say that. In fact, one of the reasons they're the best person you've ever known is because they would never say that. Only sociopaths believe in the depth of their own righteousness. And Jesus is the kind of man who stood in front of people in John 8 who hated him and said to them, which of you accuses me of sin? And the answer was silence because no one could. They had only seen him do what is right. These long introductions to the death of Jesus that the Gospels are tell us of a life that was perfect in every way. Luke chapter 2 actually goes out of its way to give us a detail that every parent would yearn for because it says that Jesus as a child went home with his mom and dad and submitted to them. He obeyed them. Parents, do your children always perfectly obey you? It's a laughable question. You account for their disobedience every single day, and that never changes. Your boss accounts for yours as well at work. We just live in this environment where people are chronically, perpetually short of the glory of God, and we're so used to it that we don't see the severity of it. There's two mistakes that people make regarding their sin. The first is very rare. Some people have sinned so grievously and their conscience has accused them so deeply that they feel beyond God's forgiveness. That's rare. I've had countless spiritual conversations, and I think I've, I can only think of three people who once told me, you're only telling me this because you don't know me. If you knew the kind of person I am, you would know that God could never love me. And I know that behind a statement like that, very likely are very serious crimes and are things that are shameful and things that keep a man up at night and things that drive a man to drink and to drugs and to do all that he can to numb his conscience because he's seen his own wickedness and he himself is appalled by it and he feels far from the grace of God and believes that God could never love him. That's one reaction to seeing your distance from the glory of God, but it's very, very rare. Most people feel, even as they read the truth of the Bible and they examine their own heart, most people feel, myself included, that we're actually doing much better than we, act, than we really are. And the reason for that is we don't compare ourselves with the glory of God. We don't measure ourselves by the Father or by the Son who can say that He is perfect and has always done what is right and pleasing to God. We don't compare ourselves with the judge and the lawgiver. We compare ourselves with, you know, who do we compare ourselves with? Each other. And I don't choose the best man I know. I choose the other guy. And by those rationalizations and those comparisons, we feel better and we comfort ourselves in the presence of someone whose very nature is holy. And holy is a simple biblical word that literally means a cut above, separate, other, different. He's not different. In a, it's not a matter of quantity. It's a matter of a different quality altogether. And the reason you're made to feel that conscience and to feel that distance is because you were made in the image of your Creator to love Him and enjoy Him forever 
And like me, you haven't. And there's a distance there. And that comparison is going to be no comfort to you. It's very much like me and the best long jumper in the world going to the Grand Canyon, making careful preparations, stretching and training and putting on the, most, the best gear and the best spikes to leap across the Grand Canyon. The world record holder is going to jump much, much farther than I am. But it will be no comfort to him that I fell directly off the edge while he jumped dozens of feet out into thin air to his death. So is the spiritual condition of people who compare themselves with each other. Paul says so. When they compare themselves with one another, they are not wise. That's not our trouble comparing ourselves to one another. The trouble is all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And maybe you've felt that. If you have, if you're troubled by your conscience, that is a gift to God from you, taking you back to the cross of Jesus and seeing Jesus who did nothing wrong, mysteriously crying out in the darkness of His own crucifixion, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What was happening then? There's not a better, simpler place in the Bible to understand what was happening at the cross of Jesus than 2 Corinthians 5.21. In Mark's gospel, we see the cross from the ground level. We stand in the dirt and we see Jesus killed by wicked men, men who only wanted to extend His life and extend His consciousness by offering the simple drink of a laborer. Men who, according to their own traditions, had some expectation that a prophet from long ago might yet come and prove that Jesus was innocent by rescuing him. Superstition and man-made religion is all around the cross of Christ, and that's what we see in the Gospels. We see it from the ground level. We're witnesses to the physical and spiritual anguish of the Son of God. Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians, gives us the point of view from heaven what God was doing at the cross what the Father was doing. And here's how he explains it. For our sake, He, God the Father, for our sake, He made Him, that is to say, Jesus. For our sake, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become, what's it say? Righteousness of God. What is being explained to you here in simple language is a substitution, an exchange. Where Jesus so closely identified with and so closely bore the sins of the world that He says God made Him, Jesus, to be sin though He knew no sin. And if you want to feel the weight of that, I want you to think for a moment, I wouldn't want to pollute your conscience ever, especially on a Sunday morning, but I want you to think of the kinds of evil deeds and crimes that make your blood boil, and if you see them on the news, you wish that the people who committed them could be killed. You got it? Can you think of the kind of injustice that makes you furious? Jesus was bearing even that. The sin that has dogged you all of your life that you've promised yourself time and time again to be done with. 
thing that splits friendships and families apart. The thing that makes you say to yourself, I don't understand myself, I don't know why I can't stop being this way, thinking this way, acting this way. The thing that you would never want to tell your mother about. The thing that you pretend is in the past but still haunts your present. That sin was being dealt with at the cross of Christ. All of those things, small things and great things, the little lies and gossip that are somewhat entertaining but actually chip away at other people's lives, the disobedience of children that is so cute when they're tiny and so heartbreaking when they're older, the adultery and the impurity and sexual immorality of every single kind and envy and hatred and backbiting and every single thing that separates people from one another and separates most crucially people from God, all of that was being dealt with on the cross of Christ and Jesus who knew nothing of it, who only experienced it as a temptation. Hebrews says he was tempted in every way just as we are but without sin. In other words, he felt the weight, the allure of every single thing that has ever separated people from each other and people from God. He felt it and he resisted it and he walked away from it, righteous, pure as God himself, because that's who he is. All of that, that eternal life was killed on the cross, the creator dying for the creation, the word of life being killed by men who knew only death. For what reason? So that we might become the righteousness of God. That's why when Jesus dies, Mark adds one more detail. The great veil of the temple, I believe the one between the holy and the holiest place, if you look again in your passage, was torn in two. And notice the details of Scripture. It was torn from top to bottom because God is doing the tearing. All their lives, that veil had represented by God's own instruction a symbol of separation between Himself and sinful people. If it was the, old, the holiest place, only one man could enter at a certain time, in a certain way, one day a year. Now that veil is removed because access to God has been granted because Jesus has died for every kind, manner, and nature of sin. What am I trying to tell you? Jesus was forsaken by God so that we never would be. I can't fathom what it means for the Father to turn away from the Son. I can't fathom eternal existence. I've had many good relationships. My wife and children are deeply satisfying, joy-giving, make-me-happy kind of relationships, but I cannot fathom a relationship with anyone who is always perfect and only increases in joy. That's the relationship that the Father and the Son had always enjoyed. And now at the crux of human history, by mutual agreement, the Father and the Son have decided and they know, Peter says, from eternity past, from before the foundation of the world, that this is what it would take to bring us back to God, to bridge that gap, to fathom that depth, to reach down from that height from, to people who had ignored God and not only ignored Him, but it lived as if He didn't exist and disobeyed Him and broken His word in thought and deed at every turn. Across all of that 
horror across all of that darkness, the father reached down to punish his son as if he were the guilty one and open up access and redefine sacred space so that a temple would no longer be necessary and there would never again be a human priest who could take you into the presence of God. On the contrary, Jesus Himself and Jesus alone will now do that for you. And because He was forsaken, you are now accepted if you trust Him. See, that's the best news that anybody could ever give you. That puts your shame, your guilt, your past sins, and your future failures and iniquities into perfect perspective. They were all dealt with at the cross of Christ so that He could be forsaken and we could be accepted. He died so that we may live. He was rejected so that we would be beloved. It's a beautiful, beautiful gospel, and He is a great, great Savior. We had great sins, so God sent His Son a beautiful, great Savior. So that Paul writes to the church at Rome this. Read with me Romans 8, 38 and 39. Paul wrote, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, it's the Father's love for the Son that sent Him to the cross. And He literally physically died, and it it's a mistake, a common mistake, but a mistake to focus so much on the physical anguish that you don't see what's happening spiritually. You don't see the transaction that's being made between our guilt and shame and the righteousness of Jesus. So from the moment you trust Him, not by the time you get better, not by the time you figure it out, not by the time you have better habits, from the very moment you turn to Jesus as Savior, the Father looks at you from that point on in the righteousness of Christ Himself. He made a trade. Your sin, your guilt, your shame, your failure, your accusations all poured out on Jesus, all judged at the cross of Jesus, so that you instead could have the very righteousness of God Himself in the person of His Son, Jesus Christ. What could ever separate you from a love like that? Nothing. That's what Easter tells us. Resurrection Sunday means that the payment was enough that the agreement that the Father and the Son made where the Father sent the Son and the Son voluntarily went so much so that He stepped forward to meet His accusers and His executioners and offered no resistance, though He could have been saved at the moment of His choosing at any time during the crucifixion. He was doing that. He was experiencing that abandonment, that forsakenness, whatever that mysteriously means. Because truly, how could a man understand the, God the Father forsaking God the Son? I can't understand it, but I can tell you its effect and its purpose. It was to welcome new children of God into God's family, to be loved and to be treated as righteous as if we were the Son Himself. That's not good advice. That's good news. And if you've ever in your life felt forsaken by God, let me tell you, you never have been. You're here this morning hearing His Word, hearing of His Son, hearing of His love and sacrifice for you. So there's two kinds of people in this room and everywhere in the world. There are those who have been trying to do better, 
And maybe part of your trying to do better has been attending this church for a long time, and you hear what the Bible says, and you try to put it into practice because you're trying to build a better life. It won't work. It's a disastrous idea, actually, to try to listen to the Bible and go out and do better until you run to Jesus to make Him your substitute. That's the first kind of person. The second is someone who knows that and believes that and has humbly come to Jesus and said, I can't save myself. I get it. I'm guilty. Trade with me. Give me eternal life, and he has, and you can't take your eyes off the past, and your present sins continually beckon you to look at the past and to look forward, look forward and backward with shame and guilt and feel yourself forsaken by God. You're not. It's the righteousness of Christ on the cross for you to make that exchange. There is nothing. That's the point of all this rhetoric in Romans 8, 38, and 39. Paul exhausts the physical possibilities and says nothing, not life, not death, not any kind of power on earth or in heaven, nothing ever made will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You don't need to feel guilty. You don't need to feel accused. You stand in the righteousness of Jesus, the Son of God, who was forsaken by God so that you never would be. So if you're in the first group and you've been trying to do better, my simple invitation to you is to give up and stop and say, Jesus, I can never be good enough. I can never do better on my own. I'm sorry for my sin. Save me. And He will. That's what He does. That must have been what was happening in a Roman soldier's life who made him look back at the cross and say, this must have been the Son of God. Things happen with this man, and this man dies in a way that no one ever has. It must be true what they said of him. It what may, it's what makes an, an accuser and a persecutor like Paul the best good news teller that Jesus ever had. It's what saves a man like me who is always, believe me, mindful of my sin and my shortcomings and disgusted with myself on a regular basis, but greatly encouraged, greatly strengthened that it's never been about me. It's always been about the righteousness of God put on the cross so that God could trade my life for the life of His Son. Let's pray together. If you're in the first group that's been trying to do better, let me very simply invite you in the name of Jesus to give up trying and to trust Him. To tell Him, Jesus, I am sorry for my sin. I know it was my sin that put you on the cross. You paid for my sin, my failure, my brokenness. You paid for it there. I accept. Make that trade with me. You take my sin, give me your righteousness. If you feel your heart softening toward that, don't resist him. Don't put it off. Run to him. Ask him to save you. He will. He's a beautiful, wonderful Savior. He loves to save. That's what his name means. And maybe this will be very likely the majority of us 
You know that he loves you this way. You know this good news, and yet you live consistently accused and tormented by what you know are real sins. You know that sin separates. Understand, in your new position in Christ, it's no longer a matter of separation. It's a matter of standing in the righteousness of Jesus himself by the Father and Son's own decision. Eternal enjoyment of one another somehow was disturbed for hours on the cross to welcome you into fellowship with them. It's never, ever again going to be about your guilt and shame. It's always now, forevermore, from the moment you trust Jesus as Savior, it's always going to be His righteousness that speaks for you. So take a moment and rest in that and thank Him for it. And if you don't have it, run to Him in prayer right now and ask Him for it. Father, I pray that you'd work in hearts right now, some who know you and love you, but are consistently accused, worn down, reminded of past sins, and lured into new ones. Help them see and understand and believe your righteousness for their sin. That's the trade. Thank you. And if there's someone here who doesn't know you, who's been trying to figure it out on their own and trying to do better, give them a moment of tenderness and humility right now to turn to you and say, I'm sorry, you paid for my sins. I accept, I believe. Let them fully throw themselves, Lord, on your mercy that they might be saved. Thank you, Lord, for loving us like this. Remind me when I'm accused Remind me when I'm sinful that you love me like this and thank you ever so much for doing more than anyone could have ever asked or imagined. In Jesus' name, amen.